1: of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Thor McElroth. Thor is the owner of McElroth & Eck, an independent RIA based in Arlington, Washington that oversees more than $610 million in assets under management for 970 client households. What's unique about Thor, though, is how he has structured his firm so that clients rotate through different advisors of the firm each time they come in for a meeting, eschewing the traditional industry approach of trying to help clients form a deep relationship with one individual advisor, and instead intentionally creating an environment where clients get advice from multiple different advisors about their situation over time. In this episode, we talk in depth about why Thor was inspired to create this rotating advisor structure because he found that in other professional services like medical teams that implement a similar structure, The team members share details and in-depth knowledge of each of the clients, and it creates a team environment where clients benefit from different expert perspectives and more oversight. And it also decreases the likelihood that clients will follow any one advisor should they happen to leave how Thor first rolled out his rotating advisor approach to clients because it wasn't the way the firm originally operated, and how despite his trepidation, a clear explanation of the benefits of the approach meant that only about 20% of Macaroth and ex-clients have been adamant about continuing to work with just a singular advisor of the firm. And the meeting notes template that Thor ultimately implemented for his advisors to centralize their notes and client information to keep everyone up to date as clients rotate. Let's talk about how Thor built his six-hour adult education class on retirement at a local community college as a way both to give back to the community, but also to drive steady growth of dozens of new clients every year. How Thor tracked the success of his adult education classes and found that about 70% of students from his classes on average would come and schedule with the firm, and of those, 70% would actually become clients. And how while Thor initially worked from a third-party template of a presentation he bought... Over time, he customizes classes by simply taking the key parts of the CFP curriculum he believes pre-retirees need to hear the most and teaching it to them in a way that fits how Thor likes to explain the concepts. And be certain to listen to the end, where Thor shares how he is happy to be the rainmaker so that his advisors can focus solely on providing the best service for the clients. And then when hiring advisors, he can focus on qualities like compassion and empathy and other traits that go beyond just how many clients they can produce for the firm. Why Thor believes that it's important to be wary of just accepting anyone as a client because not everyone will be a good fit, and eventually found that he could cultivate more loyalty from his advisors by showing that he was willing to let go of bad clients to maintain a good work environment. And why Thor feels that younger, newer advisors should strive to achieve their CFP designation, but then can make the choice of whether they're going to start going to get their own clients or simply look to find another advisor who's good at getting clients and work closely with them instead. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Thor McElrath. Welcome, Thor McElrath, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Well, I'm so excited to be here, Michael. I've seen a lot, uh, and I've even met you before at one of the Insight conferences, and I've seen so much of your writing over the years and podcasts, and I'm honored that I could be here.
1: Oh, awesome. I appreciate it. it's always good to catch up after Pershing Insight, and and I'm looking forward to to diving into the discussion today and and talking a little bit about growth and evolution of advisory firms, and and this this aspect of your firm that I was really fascinated when I had to hear when I first heard about it. That you know, I find for most advisory firms, there's kind of this mentality of like clients are clients for life, like. Eh, when when a when a, a a relationship forms between a client and an advisor it is this like holy bond is this thing that we treasure we do everything we can to try to keep clients attached to advisors you you almost never want to switch a client to another advisor if there's any way that you can you can help it because it disrupts the relationship and you know, who knows if they're going to bond with a new advisor the way that they did with the old one and and some advisory firms find like ultimately even get get challenges because they really don't want to ever change the client advisor relationship and you know in the long run you can get challenges like early clients that maybe are not the best fit for the most senior advisor but they're still working together because the advisor doesn't want to rotate the client and i know just your firm has a sort of like an intentional structure that says no we're we want to rotate clients amongst advisors we deliberately have have clients change which advisor they're working with from time to time. There are more advisors involved. And so uh, I just, I'm, I'm excited to hear like where that came from and how that came about just because so many firms seem to be of the opposite mentality that how did you end out in this realm of saying, we think it's a good idea to start having clients rotate advisors. Like, how does that come about?
2: Well, it started several ways, but one of them was, uh, um, if you could say a seminal moment was, uh, it was 16 years ago. I saw my dad in the hospital at university, of Washington medicine, when they, they cut the entire top of his skull off and, uh, his, he, he survived brain cancer, um, and lived another 15 years after that. I saw my, my dad laying there in that bed. And I, I, I was just horrified at what, what was done to him. But when, um, I talked to him um, shortly after that. He was thrilled that the surgeon that had operated on him always came in with two other qualified brain surgeons, and it was a team approach. And they had an entourage. I'd see him come in the room with an entourage of um, different uh, interns all the time to pass on this knowledge. And so through the years, uh, I have tried to, Copy some of the things I've seen in professional services at one time, I had a lot of lawyer clients and um i I noticed that there was another trainee oftentimes when the lawyer would meet with with a client that they had um a lot of training going on with this other new lawyer out of law school that 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 really learned on the job and i I saw too with accounting firms I saw that one day I called my accountant for a simple question about a Roth IRA when these were still in their infancy. And I didn't agree with what my accountant had said. So I talked to one of his partners while he was out for lunch. And um, if if I hadn't have caught him while he was out to lunch, I would have heard the same answer from my accountant and we would have not gone anywhere with, but his partner disagreed with him. And it's the team approach. I think that uh, steel sharpen steel, and we get better um, information when we have qualified minds from different angles and different insights, but also um, different sets of knowledge.
1: so I'm curious then how this manifests in the in the context of the firm because does this mean um, clients owe like always have multiple advisors that they're assigned to in just an overall team context, or literally like they rotate and different, like a client will have a different lead advisor over time because they're getting exposure to multiple different advisors in the firm.
2: So right now there's myself and three other qualified advisors, and um, there's Jeremy, Troy, and Jacob, and not in any order of seniority. And I consider them of equal ability and when the front desk calls the client for their scheduled review, then they try to get the client to see a different advisor. Now, through our CRM system, we use a derivative of Salesforce it, uh, called Accelerate. Through that software. It enables us to insert notes if a client is adamant. We do get that. Um, my my best guess is it's about 20% of the clientele um, seems to be adamant to meet with the one particular advisor. And when well, that happens, we still offer an opportunity to meet with a different advisor. But if they insist, which it might be as high as 20% do, then we
1: honor that. We work with that. I'm struck it's only 20%. Like I just I, my my gut impulse would have been probably more like 20% are willing to rotate and 80% are like no I want to meet with my advisor for my advisor thing. So I'm 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 fascinated that you find it's really 80 20 in the other direction. The majority of clients are like f- fine with this.
2: Yeah, part of that, Michael, is that we set the expe- expectation up front that as a team approach and because it helps to get oversight from somebody else um, to look at your plan independently of the other advisor that, and sometimes when I meet with a prospective client and I explain this to them, I let them know that of course, some clients want to continue to meet and they're adamant on this with one particular advisor, maybe his personality or whatever, um, I do throw that out there with a lot of <laughs> prospective clients when they come in, but I, I make it clear that it's, it's such uh, an important thing and it's such a complex with taxes and estate planning that it, it helps me, I explain to them, it helps me to sleep at night as the owner of the firm, but it also, the, the, the primary focus is always on the client to uh, give them the benefit of a different set of eyes overlooking all of their finances.
1: And so is that is that literally the language that you use like I'm I'm just curious you know, if I'm if I'm a new client and like I've just started with you and I've been through my first meeting with whoever my advisor was that now I'm going to realize like is not my advisor because it rotates when I come in next time like what does that conversation look like when you have to explain to a client the first time like so here's how it works around here like dot 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 how, how, like, how does that, how do you actually explain that? How does that conversation go?
2: You know, usually it comes up once the client, the prospective client asks, now, am I going to be meeting with you, Thor, or am I going to be meeting with
1: somebody else in your firm? Okay. And, and, it's not, and um, that's often the prospect phase, I find, like that they're someone surfacing that question that's not even always after they're a client that maybe before.
2: That's correct. That's absolutely correct. So they, they come in, they've been referred to us, or they've come in through one of our classes. We teach at one of the community, one of the colleges. And um, it, it's usually brought up by the client that they ask, will I be seeing you? or uh, Will I be seeing somebody who works for you? And I, and I, that's when I tell them the team approach that I have.
1: Okay. But I just want to make sure I understand this. A lot of other advisory firms when we talk about team approach, I guess it's it's a little bit more in the context of what you were saying for your your dad and the surgeons. Like there's always two people in the room, there's always three people in the room because we serve as a team. So we have multiple people stay in the room. But it sounds like your your team context is different because it's not like you and Jeremy or you and Troy or you and Jacob always two person or three person every meeting. It is we're a team that's why you may see any one of us at any particular time and the one is going to change over time and in fact i deliberately make the one change over time if i can
2: correct yeah so if if the client was was being served maybe serviced once a once a year or every 18 months or so it it might it would probably be prudent to have two advisors but the average client is is seen um, you know, three times a year, maybe it's two and a half, something between two and a half and three times a year on the average. And what happens is they, they have that oversight from another set of eyes going through their financial plan. So if there's been anything, um, uh, caught on that, then, then the other advisor can catch it on the review and, and, uh, look at the notes or, or just flat out tell the client, you know, we should, we should take those RMDs and, and have those go straight to the, Um, The charity or what that you're that we know that you're doing and maybe that can help out with the taxes that somebody had missed or something like that. So it's 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 it wouldn't be good use of 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 time and resources um, to have two advisors there. But but having somebody at the next meeting or whatever, overlooking it with a different um, that that would help. I I have um, one example I'm not real proud of. Many years ago, there was a pension that was missed in a plan. And, um, we caught that and it changed the whole dynamic of, I mean, the client was suffering at work wanting to retire and, uh, somebody had not put in the the pension correctly. So it wasn't catching it in the cash flows.
1: And so a second advisor who came in caught that the first on a review or something that the first advisor hadn't actually set this up correctly and then was able to start the conversation of, Hey, we've, so we've discovered something.
2: Correct. Yeah. So I think that's, it's important for the different set of eyes the the clients um, overall have been led to believe right from the beginning that that's, that's a, a good
1: approach for all parties involved. So I just, I'm just trying to visualize like how that works in practice when i like, when I'm the second advisor coming in and I'm discovering like, yeah, my colleague may have done this wrong. So now like, I need to explain that to the client. I need to, at some point, like handle that within the firm that I'm now disagreeing with, or overriding, or contradicting, like my fellow advisor on this client, and trying not to get the client stuck with it. I guess, I, I just how does it work? How do you handle situations where I, I either mistakes or even just in a, a, a good positive context, like advisors disagree about how a client's situation is being handled or how their plan is being done or how the recommendations are being made.
2: Right. So, you know, when you meet with a client regularly enough, there shouldn't be a train wreck. If if, you, if you're if you meeting with them regularly enough, before it becomes a problem, you can uh, change the course. And by regular meetings, you know, there, there are minor changes along the way. And by having my advisors together when we make a decision, for example, uh, we decided to reduce uh, as much exposure to China as we could. And so we, I like to include my advisors together. We use some of the Dimensional Fund Advisors DFA funds have for years, and uh, we – I like to have them together collectively, so I'm not just handing marching orders down, you know, we need to use this ETF from DFA because it excludes China specifically for the emerging market exposure or whatever. By having a collective, so I've always believed in having buy-in from everyone so that the allocation mix and everything is is consistent, plus I also get from my other advisors um, Feedback, opinions. I want those. I want those. Those that feedback from a team approach, so that the the message is consistent to the client, but it's also been fleshed out uh, from other qualified um, minds. You know, other professionals that ha- can think independently are not a- afraid to speak out and won't be you know, ridiculed or they won't have any rebuttal for their, their opinions and thoughts. So it's, it's always helpful to
1: have another set of eyes on the portfolios and everything. Interesting. And, and so it feels like just there's, this is part of the, the culture and fabric of the firm almost that like, Hey, we're a firm where we believe one of the values is having multiple professional eyes on on something together. And so just the way it works around here is you're going to look at what other people are are doing, whether it's planning recommendations or portfolio, other people are going to be looking at what you're doing. Like that's not meant to be a bad thing. That's meant to be a, I think, as you said, steel sharpened steel. Like let's, let's have good constructed conversations and make sure that we're getting to the best outcome or recommendation or decisions, because we're a lot of smart people having these conversations. But we do expect like we're going to have conversations and we're going to talk about these things and people might disagree. And that's how, that's how it's supposed to work.
2: Yes. And it seems honorable to, to take seriously the advice you're giving to clients. So why would you just have one person being that advisor overlooking it? That, that could be, I think, potentially not as, as powerful as having if they're qualified advisors Having them in the mix as well, coming over the plan that another qualified advisor just reviewed with a client maybe a year, maybe six months ago, That I'm talking that total financial plan, and looking at it from another set of eyes, um, from a liability, it certainly helps me sleep better at night. I mean, I read this book by Mark Tabersian years ago called Practice Made Perfect, if I have the name yeah. right, yep. and I sat down and had lunch with Mark in Seattle at a, at a mini conference right around that period, and it shocked me when I read that book that the number one way that a, he feels the primary reason an a RIA will go down in flames will be over a, a client's money leaving without the client's knowledge. Fraud. Right. And so I think having another set of eyes, I can't, I can't, this doesn't address the fraud thing, but it does help um, me sleep at night knowing that the advisors are, are overlooking each other also in the client's tax advice and and everything, whether it's Roth conversions and and all that. I don't see how over maybe a Mm -hmm. 20 year period with one client, um, one at, Advisor isn't going to make one small mistake somewhere in their advice to that client. Maybe they missed a year with a Roth conversion. Maybe there was an Irma issue. Uh, it could be a number of things. Property tax could have been lowered because of uh, the way that this non-tax deferred account was managed. I, I don't. There's lots of ways this could right. be handled. I think by having another set of eyes to help the owners of these RAs sleep better at night, knowing that there's some other additional
1: set of eyes looking at it. To me, it seems so basic. Yeah. But again, I'm struck, like you you don't necessarily do it the way that some firms do, which is, well, that's why every client has two advisors attached and there's only two advisors in the meeting because I guess from your end, that that's too inefficient. Like just that's too many advisors sitting in one room at at, at once and limits the capacity of the firm too much. So it's not... Teaming because multiple people are assigned at any time. It's teaming because clients are rotating through the team over time. And if you're doing good work with ongoing service for clients and really meeting them with them regularly and talking with them regularly, stuff's gonna come up. And if for some reason someone got a little off track with the prior recommendation, just it's it's gonna come up because you're meeting with them regularly and different eyes are looking at clients regularly.
2: Yeah, I, I, there's that, you know, I, I I remember years ago, a conversation with a friend of mine and he was talking to me about his firm. And uh, this was many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, their average billing fee was about $45,000 per client a year. And um, they always had two, maybe three people in each meeting, but I'm not, I'm not billing my clients $45,000 a year on average. So, you know, at, at trying to keep, keep, Fees fair to clients, uh, very reasonable, and all the cost structures in place so that you don't have to gouge your clients. Um, to me, that just seems like you're going to have yeah. to pay a premium in fees to
1: have two yeah. or three certified financial planners in the room all the time. So how does this work for advisors? I guess from I don't know, the the meeting prep ends, like uh, just... How do you get up to speed quickly and efficiently when you're when you're regularly rotating around to to new clients? At some point, just I mean, I, once for for a lot of us, once the book of clients gets big, like sometimes I gotta refresh in the CRM just to remember my my clients when they're my clients and I see them <laughs> yeah. regularly. Never mind when like I'm rotating amongst a much larger base of clients. So just it's harder to remember any particular person their circumstances. So I guess I'm wondering just. How do the advisors make sure they're up to speed on each new client as they're walking into each meeting? Like, how does this meeting prep process work?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Michael. Um, We haven't had a problem with that because we've we've made sure – that copious notes are taken. If if there's anyone that 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 is bad at it, it's me in meetings. People know when they come across my notes, um, they're gonna be the most scarce detail. It just is is the big points. But my advisors their notes, especially Jacob, he has a law degree, and so he he tends to <laughs> uh, write he volumes.
1: Documents, he documents thoroughly. <laughs> Good lawyer, Jacob. Well done. He
2: writes volumes on client notes after a 50-minute or an hour-long meeting. There will be uh, sometimes three pages of notes. And uh it's nice, but uh it's a little more detail to go through before the client meeting. We generally have about half hour prep time, maybe a little bit longer, maybe ten or fifteen minutes. It depends on the complexity in the client situation and so going through those notes is is very, very helpful. um I seldom ever have to to get involved, where I have to get involved in something. It's very rare. It may be once a year or something like that. And I, I, I go through these notes and it'll tell me the whole story. It paints a good clear picture for me. And that's with any advisor going through the client uh, before the review meeting. They have lots of good information from all three of my advisors and a little less, less so from myself, but um, it, it works well. And technology enables us to do that.
1: Was saying, what's the technology? And I think you mentioned earlier your your Salesforce with Accelerate as like baseline for CRM.
2: Yeah, I don't know how many advisors out there using Accelerate. I'm not sure if you're even familiar with it or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, just as kind of an an overlay, an enrichment for Salesforce because it's it's Salesforce out of the box is a little rough until you customize it to your firm. So I know just Accelerate essentially built. Build a template and a framework uh, for RIAs that have just the most common regular things that you're realistically going to do and use in Salesforce, but built out for you already to go. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can just get basically a- accelerate working out of the gates to get up to running quickly with Salesforce.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah. Salesforce accelerate is, is it? very very helpful in having a team approach because somebody can pick it up and they can see a lot of information quickly on the client and um, i don't think that's that's revealing much to advisors i think it's you know widely widely known that a good crm allows somebody so the other the other reason for a team approach is is uh like if somebody's sick or somebody's out um you know, the client's always got, and, and we get, we feel calls throughout the day, every day, five days a week, there's, there's calls coming in with some simple question the client needs an answer to, or would like to just move on with their day and get a short, uh, quick answer. Right. And with a team approach, you can do that. Any one of my advisors is able to answer that client's question. Very likely they'll be able to.
1: And just curious, like when, when do they take notes and catch up on notes, uh, just, I'm, I'm sort of missing like the doctor style, you know, at the end of the long day of patient meetings, you, you've, you've got to do your notes, get all your client notes in there before you, you, you sign off for the day. Is, is it a similar kind of thing in your firm or are you using like technology to facilitate this? Just when you're so reliant on good client meeting notes, how do you make the notes stuff happen well?
2: Well, that's 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 important question. the The office meeting notes is a is a template we use. I'm looking at one actually right now with an open file on my desk, and uh, we have office meeting notes, points of discussion, quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, um, and then per plan. Um, we'll write notes like this. This one it says client is spending too much money, <laughs> and then uh, meeting summary. Uh, we'll have any summary that an advisor wants to make. Meeting notes, um, and then meeting tasks—something that goes to um, the two trainee advisors. Actually, three. My son has earned his CFP, and uh, O'Sheen and Quinn are three young men that are. Uh, the two are studying for their CFP, and they—they they will um, will write in here and direct tasks to push it to someone in the office. Often, one of the three. CFP trainees and um, uh, sometimes it's a trade out a certain security or add at or or um, put some more in cash or whatever for an uh, impending need but through these meeting notes we can add um, detail and push it out to whoever needs to put it in their task to do
1: so so if I'm hearing there's the, I mean there's essentially like a meeting notes template for you that's got these areas of like a high-level summary of what happened the detailed meeting notes and then the like meeting task action item takeaways, which I guess you just turn into like Salesforce workflows.
2: Yeah. It's been from, you know, I've been, one of my, one of my um, passions is, is flight. I love flying and I've, um, I've built an airplane. I'm in the process of building another one uh, in my evenings and weekends and what um Uh, I've learned through the years is one of the things that makes flight extremely safe, uh, it's not safe, by the way, but it helps reduce the risk a lot, is to um, have checklists. Checklists are very, very important in Mm -hmm. my mind. They're one of the reasons why the military has a successful record of uh, hours flown, fewest accidents, and also civilian airlines as well. And um, checklists are, are a critical Part of a safe flight, and I think in business, uh, checklist for stuff that's really important, like personal finance. When somebody's asking you for guidance and advice, and you don't want to miss and overlook things, I think you need to have checklists. And I realized that many, many years ago. And I what what built it into me was um, primarily my my uh, experience with flight. So when I before I do a a flight, I always have a checklist, a couple different checklists, and even three checklists if I'm going to fly by instruments. That I make sure I go through and check off inside of a a computer in my plane, so that nothing is missed. Well, with personal finance, a lot of those those things I have those in place in the office. So our office um, is known to be very um, uh, efficient. And one of the ways to start doing that right away is to have checklists for everything you do. And people, employees appreciate that.
1: So what just what kind of checklists do you have? I mean, just in practice, like where where does this show up? What are their checklists for?
2: Uh-huh. Well, thank goodness for accelerating the CRM system with Salesforce because in there, we have checklists for lots of things, um, just about anything you can imagine i mean i've even thought as far as should there be a checklist for when you walk in the office, which light switch do you turn on first <laughs> but it 's not that bad, but um, for somebody new, we even have a a, a checklist for the cleaning lady and um, in in the office for all the procedures we have with a client. Meeting, we have a checklist checked off. Who is the advisor that's on, when's When do they recommend the next meeting? Um, that has to be put into the CRM system. And then if there's any recommendation for a will update or a trust update, that's checked off that for once a year. Um, I'm trying to think. There's there's basically a checklist for just about everything.
1: Interesting. Well, and I'm, I'm struck as well that – I don't know if this is has cropped up in the context of of your firm, but you for a lot of advisory firms, there's always the concern of what happens if an advisor leaves, like the the dynamics and risks of when clients are really really tightly bonded to an advisor. You have this eternal challenge as a firm owner: if an advisor leaves, then uh, a lot of clients tend to go with them. And and I'm sort of struck that indirectly. One of the benefits that comes from the framework that you've got is when when clients are really connected to the firm and not any one advisor because they literally rotate amongst advisors that in the event an advisor does leave, I, I would think it greatly reduces the risk and likelihood that that clients follow an advisor out the door uh, yeah, because they don't necessarily have the same connection to that advisor in in the way that you would, if, like, my advisor is my advisor and I've seen that person every single meeting for 12 years now. Uh, cause you just, you don't even set up that context for them.
2: Yeah, there is some of that. I'm not sure that that's really going to be as much protection as an advisor may hope The firm owners, I know you're talking about there. Um, I just thought of another example we, we hired somebody from a firm, um, not too far from us, um, they're one of the few other um you know RIAs in our area and um they um they had an implosion when one of their key three advisors died mm. suddenly um mm. he had a massive heart attack they think on the way home and anyway he he died in his automobile and um she left the firm from all the stress and chaos that happened at the death of this advisor the sudden passing and Um, that was also a reminder to me of, of, you know, having somebody walking around, like you mentioned with all this information and the clients dependent on them. Um, I remember years ago when it was just me and clients used to say, what am I going to do when you're not here? And I'd have to say, well, uh, we've laid such a great. We have such great planning done, and it's it's all so transparent. All these holdings are publicly traded. You can take yeah. all this to
1: Schwab. <laughs> That's what I yeah, used like to just, say. Just, you just delink us and go to your local Schwab branch. It's totally fine.
2: Yeah, and, but you know, I, that never
1: comes up anymore.
2: I haven't been asked that question since I could remember. What am I going to do when you're not here anymore?
1: I, that just doesn't mm. come up anymore. That's an interesting point. Now that question just doesn't come up. So. Any, any challenges, or I guess, I mean, I'm sure there's some, so like what, what's the biggest challenge that you had to figure out how to deal with and solve for in this like rotating advisor framework?
2: You know, it it's, it's just so, it seems like it's so smooth that, um, I don't, I, I can't think of any, anything. I remember when it, when I decided to pull the trigger on it, um. I was I was told by our office manager that you know you better have a meeting with all the clients and you better explain this what you're wanting to put into practice
1: because it wasn't even like you didn't found this way I didn't like found this, this, this way this became a thing you had to roll out well okay. it was
2: I can't I can't, yeah I can't um just be the only face that clients see anymore if I'm going to grow Right, and so I said, "This has got to end." I'm just, I'm coming home at ten, eleven o'clock at night. I'm just worn, worn out. The wheels are coming off, and so um, I said to her, "I said, we're not going to do it that way. We're just going to do it, and I'm going to every new person that comes in here from now. I'm going to be adamant that there is going to be a team approach. And if you feel extremely strongly to just work with one person, you can do that, um, but." But moving forward, we really want to turn this into a team approach. But, you know, I look back now and I can remember that, that we, we also had um, needed to start adding advisor relationships to the existing clients. And by not announcing it and having a, a meeting with all the clients or making a, a big deal out of it, it just, it just became normal operating procedure. It just became normal practice.
1: So, so tell us just about the firm overall. Um, I don't know if you measure by like assets under or management or, or or clients or revenue, but just help give us context for the the size and structure of the firm overall.
2: So, right, we run a Friday report every Friday. Um, right now, I, I just looked at. Uh, I was thinking you might ask that question, Michael. So I looked at last Friday's, and uh, last Friday it was six hundred eleven million under management. And um, we we add right now. It's about five million a month of new assets under management. And um, I
1: don't, But it's like with market growth or like flows, you're you're like taking in five million a month in in like asset net new assets, asset flows.
2: Five million a month on average is what we have coming in the door of new. Okay. Yeah. Um, year to date. It's um, 28 financial plans and new financial plans. So I think that translates into uh, financial plan updates and FPUs, we call them, and new FPs, new financial plans. I don't have that number in front of me right now, but it's about, uh, I think it's about 10 financial plan updates and almost 20 new financial plans for new prospective clients for new clients that hire us they pay us 975 dollars and we do uh, a two meeting each meeting's about two hours long and uh, we go through cash flows and and give them um, uh, a money guide pro uh, comprehensive financial plan and um the 5 million a month is a of average new money was um the same last year we had a real slowdown we were averaging about 100 million a year um up until last year we've just been living on referrals only the last almost 3 years
1: okay so how many clients is this um the average household is
2: uh, around seven hundred thousand right now, we have about nine hundred and seventy clients. Interestingly enough, out of nine hundred and seventy, there's a bunch of uh, adult children that we don't know that <laughs> we just okay, yeah, uh, scattered. Even some in Switzerland, uh, one or two there.
1: They're scattered around so like the globe. F- Folks, folks that you accommodated, right? The client says, "Hey, will you you know set up an IRA for my?" For my kids and you're like yes
2: correct and and uh i believe that's about 300 of that total so there's really um about 600 oh, a big number
1: okay yeah it's a big so it's, number. it's closer six to 700 that are really like active actively engaged clients
2: yeah seven would be on the high correct and my average advisor has about two meetings a day five days a week after you take out vacation time and so on.
1: He was going to ask just, so what this adds up to on, on the advisor end, because if you've got um, uh, six, 700 clients that like you're actively engaging with, and I think you said earlier, your, your model is, is two to three meetings uh, with clients every year. So I mean, you got like 15, hundred meetings to cover across, uh, uh, across a couple of advisors, just that, like that meeting count gets fairly high, fairly quickly. So that is a reality for you of two meetings per day per all week long, like 10 meetings a week is pretty normal for you guys.
2: Yeah. And, and it's even more sometimes like right now, um, we have a philosophy work hard and play hard and it comes from my experience I think growing up uh, Troy grew up on on a 140 acre farm down the street here um, and I grew up uh, my folks farm uh, several hundred acres of apples over in central Washington and uh, we both come from farming backgrounds and um, I believe strongly in this this work hard play hard philosophy and so what I I try to try to do is summers in Puget Sound are just glorious. I don't know if you've ever mm. been out here in the summertime, Michael, but it's just just amazing. And uh, so I I I get buy-in here on on let's get out of the office on Fridays at one o'clock, starting right before Fourth of July, or right at, I think it's always been the week or two before Fourth of July, and then right after Labor Day we'll start we'll we'll end that policy, but. So wintertime, we try to schedule as many meetings as we can so that summertime and clients don't don't uh, really want to come in and talk to us as much either in the right. summer months. It's so nice. Right, right. So we really bunch up our hours. In fact, we do a lot of Saturdays in the wintertime. We started doing that four or five years ago. I've been working Saturdays for years and uh, when the kids w- uh, were grown. And so the my main point is that, that, we we even have an average of three a day during, for example, January, February, March, maybe April, and then back it starts, you know, backing off about now to maybe one and a half on average per day per advisor.
1: Interesting, interesting. So, and so then you really do get a like three, four hundred plus meetings per year per advisor, except you can't do ten a week all year long because you've got vacation and some professional development time and conferences and such, but you're, you really do live a three, 400 plus meetings per year advisor cadence.
2: Uh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the way to do that is, is I've always believed that, that advisors should be doing what they do and they should be spending as much face time with clients as they can. So I have everything run in, in an office so that It's efficient as possible to keep that advisor interacting with clients as much as possible and not time spending um, scheduling appointments. Uh, My advisors spend no time prospecting for new clients. We spend zero time doing that during our work days. Uh, The only one that does that is me going out to college campuses and doing an education program. Uh, Through the adult education at different colleges, I'm the only one that goes out and spends and I don't spend daytime hours doing any form of prospecting. So any kind of prospecting for prospective clients is only done off hours and it's only done by me so far. And those advisors are spent all day long just working on client stuff, somebody scheduling all their meetings, taking care of, fielding all the phone calls. There's there's no vendor conversations other than maybe scheduled on an average of every three months where we'll sit all of us formally sit down together and sometimes wipe out half a day with um you know, a vendor we want to look at their investment
1: strategies or whatever, or maybe an update. So So what does the rest of the staff structure look like just to support your advisors to keep them as client meeting and client interaction focused as they are?
2: Yeah, so there's three people in client services, and those three people are handling – um, that's Melanie Quinn and Tanya, and they're managing the, the inflows from what's pretty light to us on an average month now of about $5 million of new money to manage. I don't count any of the growth as anything for the new money that doesn't. Doesn't count in my mind. Markets up or down doesn't have any bearing on that. So when I say new money, that's that's new. This client's retiring, often from Boeing or wherever they're retiring from. New new money to manage coming in the door. So there's three people that are doing that, and there's the, of course ongoing distributions, RMDs, and so on. So there's three folks handling that, and then we have the front office staff. That's um, we got Mindy and Bree. And those two are handling, um, fielding all the incoming calls, outgoing calls for client reviews. Um, that's the main points of that job on the front desk. And then we have Vicki that um, she handles as an office manager, basically the go-to person for ongoing throughout the day um, to do with office management. And then like, we need to hire a new person. Oftentimes she, she's the one front running all that. And then we have, uh, the advisors, uh, Jake, Jeremy, Troy, and Thor. Then we have, um, the, the advisor trainees that are, we're, we're, we're trying to pull up. Um, although they don't need pulling, they're very ambitious and very bright young men. And, uh, that's Quinn, my son Dalton. And, um, we, we have O'Sheen, um, I mentioned to you, he's, uh, going off to Norway on a full scholarship to get his MBA. And my son Dalton, he wants to work remotely from there. We're going to see how that works. It's a good Mm -hmm. possibility that might just work out well for all of us. My son Dalton is going to Florida state and getting his MBA. Um, he also earned a CFP right out of college at central, but he's, he's going to, um, uh, Florida State full time, getting his MBA there in financial analysis, and working remotely. It's surprising how uh, much he gets done. It's uh, working out really well. It's been since last fall. And then
1: uh, uh, finally, we have two other interns. So what what do the advisor trainees, I guess interns, do? I mean, are are these folks who are sitting in meetings and like helping in meeting notes? Are these more pair of planner types that like they're doing meeting prep and financial plan analyses and that stuff. Is it something else? Like what what do they do?
2: So these these um my my son Quinn and um Osheen, they they are and Caden I, I should include in that too, because they're all working together except Dalton's working remotely from Florida. But what they're doing is the advisors are pushing through the trades to make through the meeting notes and they're directing the trades in the client accounts after the, each meeting to make for, for both tax reasons, free up more money for income or what have you, rebalancing and those sorts of issues that they're handling the, the trading directed by the clients. And then that's um, typically my son and um, uh, O'Sheen and then we have um, the reports that Caden is being trained right now um, from O'Sheen and Quinn to be able to generate the client reports for their their daily for the meetings coming through each day,
1: and um, that's those are the primary uh, roles. So, so the these dynamics of kind of. Nine hundred plus clients in total, but really about six or six hundred plus active clients across four lead advisors. With the the meeting count and and kind of intensiveness that you've got, how, how do you think about capacity? Like, are you are you feeling near capacity? Do you still feel like you have a lot of capacity left to go? How do you how do you approach that with the volume that you've got already? Like,
2: I feel like we're at a good spot. Um, you know, my, my main role here is, is to go around and make sure everybody's happy. (laughs) Um, it makes, you know, they, they're all professionals. They all know what they're doing. Um, they care, they care very much about what they're doing and, um, I need to keep morale high. I, I need to find anything they need help them with it. Um, meet with a client that only wants to meet with Thor, which com- you know that comes up, and that's great. I enjoy that. Um, I also mentioned, failed to mention that the the trainee advisors they're also inputting data for the new financial plans and the FPUs, the financial plan updates. So they're they're in inputting that data, and then the advisor polishes it up and makes sure. So there's a lot of mentoring and coaching going on. Um, it's very helpful. Um, I'm very grateful that these these young men have gone through the. Um, they've wanted to be financial planners. O'Sheen's degree is in economics, but the other the other um, three it's in person, it's in the certified financial planner program. All three through Central Washington University. Now Dalton's going off in a little different direction with a financial analysis, but. They they already have a desire to be in right. that career, so they're they're highly specialized in their formal training, but they're really getting the on the job training is really where the rubber's hitting the road. And uh, so they're they're um, helping my advisors, and they're being mentored by my advisors at the same time, throughout the day, all day long. So we're working very closely together, and the advisors don't expect. Perfection out of them. They they are mentoring them. It and seems I'd, to be going very smooth.
1: Out curiosity, what what else is on this Friday report? I just I'm intrigued that you were you were shooting off a lot of really good like businessy numbers. So this is like someone that also loves my like weekly data reports. Like what what else is on this Friday report?
2: So in the Friday report, we run the numbers um, going back about twelve years ago, um, of the weekly growth rates in assets under management. And we run, um, our trend was 30% a year growth. It's down to 21% a year growth year over year going back. Um, I think it's, it's, it's right around, right around close 12 years running average.
1: Wow. It's like that, that's annual, that's annual rate of, of what has been growing out over the years.
2: Yes. No, that number includes market growth and market non-growth. Right, right, right. That, that number is strictly AUM, Michael. And w- next to it on the far right, we have number of clients in fine print. And then um, we have on the furthest right of the column the um, trajectory with a 30% assumed growth where we should be at. And right now, that's right a little over a billion, not 610 or 11 million. <laughs> And we, we also have a, a another group that joined us from a broker-dealer out of uh, the LA Basin area last year. We don't include them in our uh, AUM, but they're growing very fast. There's two young, bright advisors, they're both certified financial planners. Uh, they've been smart enough to, to beef up their staff for expected growth. There's three um, uh, client service staff uh, with these two young men and, um, they, they are at a little over a hundred million, just North of that around 110 million that they manage. Um, they're not included in that. So they're under our
1: ADV under our McElrath and neck. Okay. And, and where does this come from? Like, how do you actually generate this? Well, it
2: started really from from doing seminars and then these classes. Um, you know, doing classes at the local colleges for financial education um, trailed very closely with what I used to do doing seminars. so I was invited into the college. I don't know how far you want me to go with this
1: oh I'd love to hold. Backstory. So I, I guess I'm even taking me, take me further. Back. Well, just because six six hundred million dollars a lot of a lot of assets and clients. So where did where did it all come from? So it sounds like you you started in seminar marketing world.
2: Well, I don't I don't think of it as a huge deal. So it's nice to hear that from you. Um it really is because I all I read about is advisors that are billions and billions, so under management. So I I I just don't really think about
1: it. But um it's incredible number at six hundred million. So Yeah. So we're like, so how does this come about?
2: We had, um, uh, I had an invitation to teach an adult education class at the local college, Everett College. And uh, back then it was called Everett Community College. And now that a lot of the community colleges don't like to be called community colleges anymore. And uh, so at first I turned her down. I was helping her with some statistics uh, class she was taking with some homework. And I just thought, you know, I'm too busy for that. When she said, hey, Thor, you know, you might be interested in doing this adult education class for our, for our college. And, uh, the couple doing it worked for, um, uh, um, at that time it was Smith Barney and they're, 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 they're they're dissolving their marriage and they're fighting over who's gets, who gets to keep doing the class and the class is getting too small. And so it's just getting pathetic. Yeah. She said sometimes we're getting two people signing up for the class and they're fighting over who gets to teach it. And she said, it's just not like what it used to be. And so, I, I said, I don't have time for that, Karen, but, uh, appreciate the offer anyway. And then, um, don't remember exactly what I'd said, but I, I just thought, you know, that would be crazy for me to do that. Then, um, about a month later, um, I don't know what came to me, but I I realized you know that could be really fun actually teaching in adult education. I and I started thinking after work on my drives home what I would what I would teach and what I would say and how I would say it and the things that I saw that 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 were just seemed all wrong and so anyway I I thought you know that might be kind of fun, so I called her up and she said why don't you come down and meet with Sue the director of the the college here and uh, I'd like to um, you know brag you up to her and sell you to her. So she goes, why don't you drag along some material that you think would be important in teaching a class? And I says, Okay. So I showed up and right away they said, Yeah, let's let's do this. Let's put you on the calendar
1: for these dates. So what was the class on? I mean, what were you teaching?
2: It was on retirement planning. It was it was like retirement planning today or something like that. And um And when when was this? Like just
1: where when when are you tell you?
2: It was in March of two thousand six. Okay. And um so I I went out there and um the class was full. There was like 40 people there. And um I remember as I was walking to the class, I I heard all these all these um people on the playground and all the all the um things going on at the at the campus and I, I thought geez this is just not gonna out on the campus all these all these young people and I thought this is this is crazy the adults coming out to this thing it was hard finding finding parking so anyway I got there and cleaned up, you know wiped the desk down and got the class cleaned up and and um, people showed up and um, I couldn't believe how eager they were to learn all these people working at Boeing down the road and some from Microsoft and they were just so hungry for knowledge. And I just immediately loved it. I just loved it. Mm. And, um, it was in a total, it was an environment where I didn't have to buy everyone a chicken dinner.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like, like Everett community college is doing all the like, marketing, promoting, like getting, getting people in seats, you're, you literally just have to show up and teach.
2: You literally have to show up. They, they handle the enrollments. Um, now what we did is we, we hired a service to handle the mailing to increase because when Karen told me there's not enough people showing up anymore, I realized there's gotta be some way to, to augment this. And, um, so, um, I hired a company to handle the the mailing, and um, I bought their books from them. And well, I found that 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 the books weren't they were heavy on insurance, but I so I just didn't use the book, and I didn't use their PowerPoint. I gave the book out uh, because the company wanted me to buy so many of their books. So I just told people we're not going to use the book. Um, but here it is. This is for your own use after the class. And I warned him, I said it's heavy on insurance and things like this.
1: Be, but, because just the the company's deal was like we you know, we don't charge you a bunch for doing the seminar mailers, we charge you for the books. Correct. Which were sold at a premium and that was just how they got paid. So what what was the company that you were working with to to do this?
2: Back then it was called FMT. And Okay. I'm not sure if that's what they're still called. Um,
1: yeah, they've, they've had some iter- they've had some iterations over the years, but they're, they're still out there as a version of education marketing program.
2: Okay, yeah. so we, we used them. Um, there was a guy named uh, Jeff Franz that was, was talking to me, and um, everything Jeff said was true. Um, that if you if you hire us to do so many mailings we send out so many we'll augment the class by these sizes and it all happened uh just like jeff had. and i found with with you know getting people to attend seminars and giving them a free chicken dinner that that the number the rule was was the same the 70 70 rule so you'd have um 70% Seventy percent would come in to see you if you did a really good seminar. seventy percent would hire you, um, except that that sometimes it just never happened <laughs> uh, but with with classes, I found that seventy percent of the people would come in to see me, and seventy percent of those would hire me to do a financial plan. and they were I found that people that came in off the street through a couple of years after that from 2006 to maybe 2008 i found that those people were not good clients that they 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 didn't believe in our philosophy maybe or they just i i i just can't think of all the reasons but when when we did when we have people go through one of these 6 hour courses Spread out over a sa- two Saturdays or two Thursdays or two Tuesday evenings, what we found was what I found was that they were a, a, a much better educated, and in a positive way. I mean, brainwashed. I mean, in a positive way, they had a good. Understanding of why it's important to, to consider diversification as a way for protection, some of the basics in investing, and um, why tax management is not critical, but, in, but a good thing to have a basic understanding of such terms as marginal tax rates, effective tax rates, capital gains taxes. Some of these concepts, basic concepts, is not a bad idea to have a basic understanding of those. And estate planning, what a will and a trust is. So then we're not, you know, having to explain our value equation to every single person. And some of those people are coming in to interview you for a job. But many of them are coming in to learn something. And once they see that there's a lot here to um, doing personal finance, after all these years, I may have built up a net worth of a couple million dollars less or more, and um, if somebody's got a reasonable price tag to help me steward, manage that effectively, it might just be worth it. So the the two people coming in I found over the years to one of these classes are people that are looking to hire somebody. They're like interviewing you. you. You don't really know that at the time. And there's others that come in to learn something, and, and after learning some a lot of different basic concepts in six hours of time, because hopefully you haven't wasted anyone's time. you've You've hit the ground running in that six hours and not turned any of it into an infomercial, that they realize that maybe I should get some help with some of these things.
1: So – so, talk to me a little bit more about how that works. So, just you, you put some numbers there that are, at least I think, like pretty big numbers. I think you said of, of people who go through the class, like 70% of them may come to you for a follow up meeting. And then, of those, 70% of those will hire you to do a financial plan. like almost half the class. Doing That's that, about right. right. It uh, works out about half of 70%. The class. Yes. Half the class ends out engaging you for something.
2: Correct that that is correct um sometimes you'll you'll have a class where 100% of them will come to your office to see you um other times it'll be 50% but but if you do uh three or four classes or I was doing even more like 10 12 a year uh, for a few years there at least um there was um sometimes 50% sometimes maybe 30 percent um but it it worked out to an average consistently over time of about 70% and that's what um i remember jeff franz was telling me that and that was um in the early days of seminar marketing that was um pretty standard
1: interesting and so thus thus how you get to so many hundreds of clients like at your at your peak if you're doing 10 plus classes and bringing in 20 or 30 or 40 people in a class and getting 10 plus clients when you go through a class, that adds up to a lot of clients.
2: Yeah, no, those are financial plans. And if you're charging $4,000 to do a financial plan, uh, your numbers might be different. I don't mean that to be sarcastic. They, they, just, I just have no idea. You, you always, had
1: a lo- you had a lower price point for yours.
2: Exactly. In the early days, it was five
1: hundred dollars to do
2: a financial plan. When I think I frequently saw fifteen hundred dollars.
1: You know, I always heard these
2: prices for a financial plan, but uh, in thirty-one years of being in this business, I've only seen maybe. Half a dozen financial plans from other people. <laughs> I mean, everybody says they do financial planning, but yeah. I've almost never seen it, Michael. I, I I've asked people to produce a financial plan years ago, and sometimes what they produce was a proposal for a variable universal life from a New York life insurance agent or a you know Prudential agent or something. But right. I, I the 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 level of the the financial planning that you you see in writing is pretty scant still today. Um, but saying all that, maybe the the statistics are flawed because you're not going to see them if, they're, if they had a plan because they're so happy with the advisor. And maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. But I, I'm just trying to point out that we were doing um, in a, a lot of financial plans at $500 back then.
1: Was that the whole business for you or then like you do a plan – and then a portion of those might also end up doing assets or management business with you. And and then that's how the AUM base ultimately grew.
2: Yeah. So the, the, the always the hope was that they would have money for us to manage. Um, so we do the plan because I felt strongly, you know, we should have a kind of like when I learned how to build a house, um, kind of fumbled through um, the first custom home we built and, uh, some of that was from from um, buying off the rack house plan, and and uh, there was all kinds of issues that came up later on from not only the, the electrician but the plumber. So I, I've I've had it ingrained in me that a good plan is always and and being a pilot, I mean it should be obvious to any any halfway serious uh, pilot in aviation that they're gonna um, need to have a flight plan to have an expected good outcome to handle emergencies and everything. So. Um, pilots are constantly working on planning for emergencies all the time. I had somebody up the other day and I was just, he was asking me I was looking around on the ground all the time because he wanted a visual flight plan. And I said, because I'm looking for a place to put the plane down if the motor blows up. And he just looked at me in horror. And I said, but that, that's what a good pilot's always doing is looking for a place to put it down. So I was, uh, always a strong believer in having a financial plan and the, the cost has always been very, very reasonable. Um, did I cover my time at $500 a plan back then? Yes, I did. Um, did I lose money? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Um, at 9-7, was there any profits in it? I, I don't think so. But at least I, I got compensated for my time. The, the planning class now at nine seventy five. if we weren't doing a lot of financial plans, um, maybe an advisor is doing three new plans a year. Uh, I, I think that the time involved for the, the client would be a lot more than what we spend now and doing, I think, a very high quality financial plan and outcome for a client. We just do a lot of them. You know, we're not doing like onesie and twosie or three or five a year. We're doing a lot more than that. In, in most years, we do 150 new financial plans a year and uh, 30, 40, maybe 50 updates as well as that a year. So we've always taken financial planning very seriously. We have a very systemized approach to it. Um, I remember years and years ago with one of the software vendors, that financial planning meeting was like six, eight hours long. And um, the client, it was just as miserable for them as it was for me. <laughs> you know, so we want um, the planning experience to be meaningful. And when the client leaves, to have actual data and specific advice to act on so that they're empowered to do it themselves if they want to. And what we find is that most of them engage us to do it. Now, a lot of these plans, when, when advisors do these, this, the way I do it is they're not going to get money to manage right off the bat with, with many of these. There are people that are still working. Um, they're often a year, two years away from retirement, maybe five. And, um, your payday comes when they retire. Most of these people, if you stay in touch with them and keep doing their financial plan updates, I mean, we, we would not do financial plan updates for $475. Do we lose money on it? I don't think so. Do we make profit? Probably not again, but we, we at least get, it compensates for the time about right. And, um, what happens is if you keep these financial plan updates for these people, and treat them honorably is that uh, they'll almost always hire
1: you to manage their money when they retire. They'll want your help. So Thor, help me understand how you actually turn this into business. Like I understand, about seventy percent of the people in the room would would come to see you for a financial for I guess for an, like an approach meeting and then 70% of those do a plan like how do you actually get them to come and meet with you and just like not have that be awkward or like inappropriate in the community college classroom context like how do you, how do you actually do that to get them to go from being students to being prospective clients?
2: I think the first uh, thing to do is to make sure that you're very careful that everything you do, is not exaggerated in any way that you're self-critical and you're, 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 you're auditioning for a job potentially in front of, you know, uh, maybe as high as 20 couples. Right. And maybe there's 45 people in it that, that, that that's not un, that uncommon. Um, and what happens is, you're they're looking at you very carefully and you need to be careful that you do not exaggerate anything that you're very transparent and very likable and how do you do those things in my mind it's just being authentic and it's and it's trying to appreciate the value in every human being as corny as that sounds it's it's really putting effort into that and if you do those things, you come across as a pretty gracious kind of person that somebody wouldn't mind hanging around with for five minutes at least. But and how, how so, do you when do you do that, you, you you tell them, pardon me.
1: No, so, go ahead. Like just kidding. How, you how do you tell them the ask?
2: So you yeah. you need to tell them up front that when we're over with, when we're through this class, I'm going to spend a few minutes explaining some of the ground rules. When we're when we're through. With this class, everybody here is going to be invited to my office for a complimentary consultation. I'm off. I'm off the highway on Smoky Point, and uh, big glass building right off the freeway there, and uh, we'll send you out a packet of information. Tell you, we'll put in a brag card, try to make you think we're all really nice people, and we'll want you to bring in a tax return, um, any financial statements and uh, make it a competent conversation so that I can give you some specific advice, some specific ideas in that our time you should have some pretty good um, ideas and things you can use to to help improve your financial life. And then if you want to hire us, we have a separate charge for a comprehensive, detailed financial strategy. I don't like using the word plan much because it doesn't really say a lot. So a strategy to me uh, says Hmm. some specific action steps, what we should do and so on. So I tell them in just those words, Michael. And I I tell them, I look at them all in the eye and I tell them, when you come in to see me, you'll have some specific advice and uh, in that hour. And then if it feels like it's a good idea to hire us, we send you away and you can pay us when we're done with a financial plan, generally in about a month. We'll have a couple separate meetings. So I explained the process very quickly, uh, briefly. I said, if you want any more information, you can find it all on the internet, on our website. I'm not going to turn this into a commercial, folks. And then I I move on. That's that's it. And then at the end of the class, I tell them, here's a survey from the college. The college needs us handed back tonight. Um, I drop it off in the uh, at the, at the main office. And then answer candidly what you thought of this class. Please answer it as, as critically as you like, because, um, at the end of the year, they give me back all the marks and show areas of improvement. And then I have my own. If any of you want to see me check, yes, I want to see Thor for that complimentary consultation. These are areas of improvement that Thor could utilize. And, uh, if you put my your email address down here, folks, you're gonna uh, forever be uh, slammed with emails from me, and they'll hmm. never end. And then uh, that's it. I, I take those. If they Very checked fun. yes, they want to see Thor for a complimentary consultation,
1: then then you do the follow-up. immediately in the morning. Somebody's calling. And and where did the presentation come that you're delivering for this? Like, does the college give it? to you when they invite you to do retirement planning today or like did you have to make this from scratch or did you like find a six-hour retirement workshop in a box like where where where's the actual presentation come from to do a six-hour class
2: okay so originally i used fmt uh, for basically the turnkey mailing to get the classes up because I, i couldn't stand the book Um, And the PowerPoints, I never liked it. So I just stood up for three hours the first session, three hours the second session, and I went right off almost entirely from rote memory.
1: Because you've done these conversations so many times with clients, like, I'm just going to start sounding off on the things you all need to hear about.
2: What I did is, uh, is I always write an outline on the board. And in that outline, I go through eight topic areas. And it ends with estate planning um, near the end will, or middle will be investment planning and tax management and so on the the basic topics. And then um, I use that to keep my head um, focused and I have lots of handouts I use. So throughout the evening or if it's Saturday morning, I'm walking around with handouts, handing them out just like in a regular classroom. And um, I have two boxes. I keep, I walk in with those and I have them all organized and I lay them all out on a, on a desk in front of me. And I use those, uh, prodigiously through the, through the class. And then now I've developed my own books and PowerPoint completely on my own and paid to have those, uh, printed up in a more polished, more professional in a way that I could use. So the old ones were heavy on insurance, annuities, life insurance. Um, You know, we we don't find the need for retirees to be uh, bulking up on whole life insurance and typically not the need for life insurance. And um, we even find that most long-term care insurance, when you go through the analysis, that uh, a lot of that stuff can be self-insured. So we we
1: see the book as heavy in those things years and years ago, and I just never liked it. So, so, as it's evolved for you, like version one, I mean, what you were describing, like tax management, investment, the state playing, like you're essentially just writing like CFP board topic list kinds of things <laughs> and <laughs> just yes, kind exactly. of sound, sounding off in the areas, right? Like if I've got eight of them and I spend uh, uh, 20, 30, 40 minutes each plus some questions, six hours goes by pretty darn quickly. And then, as you did enough of those, you started making your own version of okay, I'm gonna make my own PowerPoint. I think I want to include these visuals because I keep describing, and it, it's coming up, so like I'm gonna grab a good visual for this and like the 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 presentation like came later or got crisper later.
2: That's exactly right. One of the when Jeff Franz sold the business f m t he uh they brought out a video crew to the new owners. And uh, videotaped me doing a couple classes, and I noticed the book. They they took some of my handouts, asked me if they could use those. I said fine, that that doesn't bother me at all. And they started showing up in the book, but it was still, um, I, I I I just thought it w- wouldn't work for what we were trying to do. So so,
1: so what were you spending? I, I guess it's like to do the mailers. I mean, did you have a did you keep a bunch of metrics on this, like we spend x dollars and we get y dollars of revenue like
2: yeah, yeah, that's true um so what we what we found was to to um we would have on average about two and a half million of new money per class, and each class back then um was like six thousand dollars for mailers, okay,
1: so you're getting two and a half million of new new money, which can give you twenty five thousand dollars a year of revenue at a at a one percent fee for a six thousand dollar mailer fee correct plus yeah. plus plus some planning fees that you were charging for separately,
2: yeah, so the financial planning fees advisors have have reached out to me over the years. And um I found that many of them weren't charging for the financial plans. And I, I still find that today. I get I get um queried every once in a while. And um I really encourage them to charge for the financial planning fees. Part of this was a retired partner of mine, Sam Eck, that's been practicing law for about 50 years. And Sam has always been adamant that advisors should be charging fees for their their financial planning. Why would an attorney do a will for nothing? I mean, that would probably scare the dick daylights out of people. If you know, why are you doing this for free? Uh, Why should we be doing financial planning? It's a lot of work. It's a lot more work doing um, a financial plan for just about any sixty-year-old within in the, the middle income bracket. It's a lot more work than doing a will. So why should you not be charging for it? So I found that with the planning fees, we would cover entirely the cost of the mailing. So what I was doing was reinvesting that into, that was out of, kind of out of my, at least I'd get my time card. I could look at it two ways. I could cover my time with the financial planning or I could cover the cost of getting the new client. Right.
1: Now through the years. Math math wise, right. And just, 6k on mailers to basically recover in 6k in financial planning fees, and at the margin, like just it's your time to do six hours of classes to get two and a half million of new assets. Like, that's a really good ROI on uh time for doing workshops at that point. Like, that's a couple hours of workshops for two and a half million new money on a repeatable system where you just keep doing your mailers and doing your classes and a thing you've at that point taught a zillion times and can do in your sleep. Like that's a, it's a very honed in system as that iterates. Yeah. One of my friends that, um, has,
2: uh, taken my advice and they're, they're using, um, the, we're, we're giving them our, our books and everything. They, um, they just got a client two weeks ago. One of them for with nine million dollars of new assets to manage, just one person. Wow. And sometimes we would get that a client with you know um, a large investable asset base, and that would skew the numbers way out of the park. But over time, I, I think that everything re, you know reverts back to the mean. And yeah. so I think what we're gonna, what advisors, all of them are gonna find is that. That, that either do what I'm doing as a systematic approach to getting clients and growing their firms, or they're thinking about it, is it's always going to be the same if they just do the same basic things. Because some classes are going to be, I've seen <laughs> evenings where I would do a class and I overheard someone like in the men's room, I went in there and walked out. And as I was walking out, I heard I heard people in there saying, we got to go see this guy. We can't wait to go see him. This, this guy's got, you know, this is that's great. That's what you like to hear. <laughs> I've heard that. And uh, of course, that's when you get the hundred percent of the class, maybe coming right. to see you. You'll have your evangelists, of course, during a break, they'll, yep. they'll go around and tell everybody this guy, I think he's really good because he's saying way different stuff than what my guy or my gal is saying. Right. And so yeah, that's where you'll get some of these really high. But over time, it's going to work out the same where everybody does it just like I do it. They're going to find it. It's about two and a half million of new assets under management. And then as their firm grows, their referral rates are going to start really kicking into high gear.
1: So, well, so and on that vein, I mean, you said earlier, growth, growth has been slower for you lately and that it's predominantly referrals. So is is, are these educational workshops not, not part of your marketing world anymore
2: there they haven't been for several years um since covid um it really it, it's 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 been pretty much nothing
1: and so we're because covid just knocked, knocked out in-person stuff and it, it didn't bounce back afterwards or you just didn't even want to go back and try anymore
2: well the the college wanted us to do zoom only And we did two of them last year and it was so unfun to me.
1: Yeah, from the I can attest from the speaking end as well. Just as a speaker, virtual like seminars and workshops are really unfulfilling. Like you you thrive off of the audience interaction and the energy of other people and like it's not the same in any way, shape, or form when you're doing it (laughs) in front of a camera and there's no one else in the room it's just you and a screen and some faces on the screen maybe if they even have their cameras on
2: yeah when i when i first met you at insight i i felt your energy it was and i i totally understand i because i do that myself and um it's so different and my advisors they want to start doing it now too and um You know, they want to do the Zoom because they saw all the evenings. I left the office at 4 o'clock, 4.30, to show up an hour early, make sure that the desks were cleaned off and everything was good in the classroom, get my handouts ready. And they saw that in the late nights, and um, they want to do the Zoom. But I was just – we were just talking about it that – you know, it's, it's just, I, you guys can do the zoom. All right. But I'll go out Everett community call Everett college has opened it back up again for live. Mm. I'll do that. And you guys can do the zoom. And, and we'll see who puts up
1: some better numbers in a while.
2: Well there it's interesting. <laughs> I I've talked to advisors that, um, do it the same way I do it exactly. In fact, some of them I've mentored and, um, they are reporting outstanding results the same with the zoom oh interesting yeah they're reporting the same um i've got in different parts of the country so a little group I'm of sorry. us we share notes and information so, and, so uh, it's
1: not necessarily that you don't think the zoom can produce results but just you you just literally don't enjoy teaching that way without getting your 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 in-person audience so that's why you want to go back to ever it was it opens up again
2: that's right. That's correct. Yeah. I think that's all of it right there.
1: So as you look back on this journey, just what's surprised you the most of building your own advisory business?
2: Well... um I, I've, I've liked seeing the, the fiduciary talked about a lot more than it used to be. I remember years ago trying to describe to people what a fiduciary was when I dropped the broker-dealer many years ago now. And uh, it was almost 20 years ago. And, um, you know, trying to explain it, people's eyes would just glaze over. It didn't mean anything to them. Right. But nowadays, people are, of course, I think we all know, are much more keen on that. Um, I'm surprised that it didn't happen sooner but we uh, you can see you could have seen it you, you saw it coming though with more of the colleges coming out with CFP specialty programs. there's even a doctorate I think in financial planning at a couple of schools now and more people in their early 20s are starting to learn uh, late teens. Maybe 19 years of age are starting to hear about the CFP career path, and uh, they're very. Where years ago you had to eat what you kill, you know, you had to be marketer first. I remember when Merrill Lynch had the program for CFP, and then they, if you put CFP behind your name, you were fired. (laughs) Um, There was there was uh, some controversy, you know, some of the wirehouses getting CFP
1: whereas your whole environment now is they don't eat what they kill like you're you're out you've been out doing seminar marketing for years their job is just meet with a whole lot of clients on an ongoing basis and just be awesome advisors meeting with a whole lot of clients on an ongoing basis.
2: Er, yeah, that's that's right. Earlier in my career um I I just thought it was a shame that so many quality People in our industry back then, you know, we weren't ashamed to call ourselves stockbrokers. And so many people in the industry were were gone because they couldn't get enough clients. And I I noticed that right away. All all my peers were gone. And I learned from that that, you know, there's a lot of quality people that are no longer around me. They're gone. And they they just can't get in get any clients. And so I made a decision a long time ago that, that what I need to do is I need to, um, use my strong work ethic and I'll be the rainmaker and I'll bring the clients in and I'll get these people that would otherwise be thrown out of the industry because they're, they're not a rainmaker or a salesperson, God forbid, or they, they just can't get clients, but they're great people. They want to serve. They they love what they do, and Jake and Troy they came from that environment. Jeremy, nobody would give him a job, but he was getting his MBA, his second master's, his second graduate degree. And uh, sharp guy, he is uh, very sharp. And uh, Jake and Troy, um, Tro- Jacob worked for Ax Advisors. He was top of his class at law school, and uh, but he couldn't get um, enough clients to, to stay in the business. And Roy worked at Waddell and Reed, a very bright guy, um, always does the right thing for clients and always will. And, um, he will put other people before himself and he'll suffer as a consequence if that's what it takes. And these, this is the kind of people that you so, want. And there's, yeah. I've people like that come and go and it's just like let me go out and be the rainmaker i'll go out and i'll bring the clients in you just have to help me take really good care of them and you focus on being the best greatest advisor you can so I, more you know uh good there's a lot of firms growing that way yeah. that people don't have to eat what they kill
1: so what was the low point for you on this journey of building the business
2: well, I remember in 2008, I'm sure you do too, Michael, mm-hmm. <laughs> those Were tough times and seeing people's portfolios down 25, 35, maybe even 40% at the lowest bottom. And, um, you know, those were low points when you, you had, um, political leaders that, you know, didn't really have anything optimistic to say. And you, you know, it was very, you saw people losing their homes. I remember I I had a guy that um, helped build a house for me. I had to move his, I helped his family move out of a house um, when they lost it to the bank. And now he's thriving as a builder again. But those were, those were hard times for a lot of people.
1: And um, that how did that show up for you in the business? Like, where where was the business at that point?
2: Uh, at that point, we had about $40 million under management. And um, um, Troy was working at Waddell and Reed. And um, Jake, uh, his I hadn't met him yet. Jacob Lucas is another one of my advisors. His parents had just become clients right after that. And then they suggested I meet their son yeah, he'd be a good addition to my firm. Mm. I'm, I'm very glad they did, uh, encourage me to meet with their son. And, yeah. uh, um, Jeremy was the same thing. It was his father-in-law that wanted me to meet him, but, um, nobody would, would give him a job at the time in in our industry. So those, that period was, was pretty dark, but we had about 40 million at that time. It was just me and my partner, Samick. He was very involved in the legal, you know, entirely the, the, the wills and the trust. And, um, we work side by side, but, um, doing different, very different things. And we thought that we would have a great, um, advantage with referring clients back and forth. But, um, I had so much growth from the, the classes essentially that we didn't have any time to take advantage of any opportunities from all of his years of practicing law just never came to fruition. But we just mainly worked together because we, we liked each other. We love each other. So we just work great together. We wanted to be to be around each other. Sam Eck, my uh, part retired partner, but, um, those were, that was a period that I don't want to relive again, but
1: it was, um, it was it's been good solid steady growth ever since. So what do you like know now you wish you could go back and tell you from fifteen plus years ago when you were getting getting going in the independent channel?
2: <laughs> I would I would I would encourage uh all anybody on industry to make sure as a prerequisite, a basic that you get the CFP. I love the certified financial planner program. Big fan of it. And um, that you always become a prolific reader in anything to do with history. It has a lot to do with with finance in a lot of ways. Um, You you understand all things about personal finance and people. And um, be careful about trying to help every single person that comes in the door. Because Mm. one thing that we found over the years was that people that came in that I felt sorry for them, uh, bad things that often when you look back, they had done to themselves to poor decisions and so on repeatedly. Um, they, they can be a real drag on you. So we have a very, very pleasant clientele because I think like a lot of, lot of advisors have been selective and who they want to work with. And, um, one of the things when we add a new team member here, they they almost invariably bring up is that it seems like the clients here are so nice. And it's, well, they've been selected carefully. (laughs) We've been careful in who we've selected. We don't tell them that, but they've been
1: carefully selected to be our client here. So how do you handle that for the ones that Aren't a good fix. It's one thing to say, like, be careful trying to help every single person at the door. It's another to actually reject said people when the when the time comes, right? Like, it's 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 hard to turn people away who who are in need who seem to be in need. So, how how do you actually tell them no and turn them away and make that work? We have a, a great relationship with another advisor in the
2: Seattle area, and we. Um, have given him several referrals. Um, mm. Several of all three have been pretty big clients. And they were just, one of them was had just fallen into a massive amount of new wealth. Um, and he was so mean to everyone in the office. And I, I'd heard it repeatedly. I decided to take it more seriously. Seriously, and look into it. And when I heard that he demanded a special report every week, be, and that he was asking for for more and more, uh, that was unreasonable. Um, I called him up and I said, I, "I need you to move your accounts out. I need you to find somebody else to work with." And he didn't even ask me why, but I let him know that he wasn't welcome here anymore. And he asked me how much time he had, and I said, "Take all the time you need. We we just we just don't want to work with you anymore." And, um, I had, uh, a couple other, uh, experiences like that over a couple decades where they were just mean people. Um, one of them wrote me an apology letter after I asked him to go somewhere else and said he was on some medication and it, um, and I'd, you know, he worked for the CIA for a number of years. Um, but, um, the damage had already been done to the relationship. And um, one of them was an accusation of sexism to Troy. And um, I looked into it and found out that, no, uh, she was grave, grossly uh, exaggerated something that nobody could construe as sexism in a comment and um, no reasonable person. And so she seemed to understand that it was we didn't want to work with her anymore. And, um, what it did is it showed Troy that I valued him as a employee and as a friend and that I would choose him over somebody that decided to, uh, more than once take their
1: bad day out
2: on an employee.
1: Any other advice you would give younger, newer advisors, like looking to come into the industry today and get started?
2: My advice has always been consistent, Michael. Get that, start on that CFP. Um, Learn a lot about history, people. uh, A lot of what happens repeats itself and understanding a little bit deeper than the average consumer about um, administrations and prolific spending and how it can affect Uh, gyrations and money supply and how that can affect when growth rates pick up inflation and how have a a good, be able to explain something at any given moment that is probably pretty accurate uh, just because you have taken the time to learn about your craft and learn it well and not just the obvious stuff like the latest changes in the tax codes and taking an interest in those things, but also history. And cause it does, like I said, it does repeat itself. And, um, if you can't get clients, go work for some with somebody who can, mm. and, um, then, um, you'll stay very busy. And, um, Always focus on the client. If you, and number one, probably exceed expectations. If you exceed expectations, you'll have a built-in marketing plan right there, but you have to exceed them. And sometimes that may mean um, stay open, go to, go to the office Saturday morning and open it up for somebody who's panicked about their job doesn't look secure right now and the world's changing for them. Suddenly some event happened and, and be there Saturday morning for them if that's what it takes. I think, I think being flexible with people and making it fun, having a good time.
1: So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is the literally that word success means sometimes very different things to different people. And so you've built this wonderfully successful business by any objective measure. The advisory firms in a great place right now. How do you define success for yourself? At this point,
2: well, the way I define it, some some may look at it as with contempt, and some may look at it as right on. And I define success as a life God honoring, is honoring God. And at the end of the day, um, everyone's going to give an account for how they live their life. And it and it being fifty, turning fifty three last year, I, I can tell you i don't uh the years just fly time time goes fast at least for me it has i'm sure you would say the same and at the end of the day i i want to be that good servant that that was god honoring and what i did knowing that i'm not perfect in an imperfect world but um i give credit to my creator god who created me and um i take in all people that i may not agree with um but that's not my job to judge them, and um, I just want to be God honoring in what I do throughout my work day and uh, do the best I can with the and use the talents I've been given i've I've learned through the years that I have been giving a talent given a talent in personal finance and um empathy for people and compassion, and using those skills combined as has I look for those traits in um, people that I hire I want a trade of empathy and sympathy for people but also um, somebody who's not entirely intimidated by numbers and has an interest in personal finance those are our traits I think necessary to thrive in our business but that's I think there's a lot more to this life than just having career success. I know many have had far more career success than myself. And um, I don't spend any time thinking about it. Um, and uh, it's try to exceed expectations. But at the end of the day, there's a lot more to this life than just career success. There's far more. You'll have an empty life if that's what you're, what drives you. At the end of the day, that's just not enough.
1: Amen. Well, thank you, Thor, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. <laughs> it was an honor,
2: Michael, and I, I'm so uh, honored that you would you would invite me here. Uh, I've, I've been uh, a fan of yours. I've appreciated um, your style and the, the way that you've um, grown yourself. Um, it's, it's been and there's a lot of very positive things people say about you in the industry.
1: Awesome. I appreciate that. thank you.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.